You are listening to the First Baptist Church Martin podcast. For more information on our church, visit fbcmartin.org. If you're new to First Baptist, been away for a while, uh, we're going to jump back into something that we started at the beginning of this year. Back in January, we started a study through this New Testament letter that we know now as 1 Corinthians. We got into the spring, deep into the spring, and we laid our study of 1 Corinthians aside uh, to focus on some other things. Easter was getting close, and so we spent some time preparing ourselves for the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, and then following Easter, we spent some time talking about our mission statement, and then summer was on top of us, and so we spent the summer in the Psalms, and now summer is over, and we're going to jump back into our study of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be here throughout the fall. So I hope that you'll stay with us, and let's work our way through this New Testament letter from the, from the Apostle Paul to the believers in the church in Corinth. This morning we're going to be in chapter 6, the end of the chapter, starting with verse 12, and then reading down to the end, verse 20. Would you stand with me this morning in honor of our Lord and the reading of His Word to us today? Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So these are not Paul's words, these are the words of the Lord spoken through Paul. He says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is your word. And we receive it today from you. I pray that you speak in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help me to get out of the way so that you would have your way in this place and in our lives. That Christ be glorified here among us today. Lord, I know that you have a hard word for us, but it's an important word. And I pray that we would receive it with hearts that are open and receptive to your truth. And Lord, I pray that you would take your word and use it in our life to change us and transform us and make us into who you would have us to be in Christ Jesus, that we might bring you glory and praise and honor together as your people. So Lord, move, I pray, in this place through the preaching of your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
Well, so much for wading back into our study. Amen? What a passage that the Lord has set in front of us today. Let me just kind of catch you up as to what is going on in this letter. When Paul writes to the believers in Corinth, he is writing to a church that is really messed up. It's a church that has a lot of issues, which makes this letter very important and very relevant for the church today because the church where we live has a lot of issues, a lot of things that need to be worked out, a lot of things that need to be changed. And such was the case with this church in Corinth. One of the problems within this church was the problem of divisions. You had these little cliques that had formed within the church, mainly around their favorite spiritual leaders and spiritual teachers. And the people in these different groups thought that they had it all figured out and they saw themselves as being superior to others within the church. And it created this fractured atmosphere, this divided environment within this congregation. And then on top of that, you have believers who are not growing in Christ the way that they should. They have not moved from the milk of God's Word onto the meat of God's Word. They're not growing. And because they're not growing, they are acting more carnally and childishly than they are spiritually as those who are maturing in their faith and growing in Christ. And because they're not growing as they should in Christ, you have in this church believers who are finding it very difficult to break away from the sins of their past. God had saved them. God had rescued them out of their sin, but because they're not growing as they should, they are finding it difficult. It's a real struggle for them to put off that former way of living and not go back to it because they're living in the midst of ungodly surroundings. They're still surrounded by the same people who are living the same lifestyle that they once lived, and they're finding it hard to resist because they don't have any spiritual stamina or spiritual strength as a result of their spiritual immaturity. And one of the things they were struggling with in this church, one of the sins that they were finding it difficult to break free from was the sin of sexual immorality. You see, sexual immorality was prominent in the city of Corinth. You remember that outside the city, there was this temple that was built to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. And every night, descending down into the city from that temple would be thousands of temple prostitutes. They would go into the city and they would engage in various acts of sexual immorality with the people who lived there or even with the people who were passing through the city as guests. This was prominent. It was going on all the time. And some of those who were now a part of this church once lived that lifestyle. They once engaged in those acts of sexual immorality. It was a part of their past, but God had saved them. God had called them out of that old way of living and had called them into this new life of obedience in following Jesus Christ. And yet these believers were finding it hard to be able to leave the past behind. And instead, many of them had been drugged back into this old way of living. And not only were they going back to this old way of living, some of them had actually convinced themselves that it was okay, that there was nothing wrong with it. And Paul is writing here in this letter to correct them. 
and to help them to see and understand who they are now in Christ and to warn them against the dangers of living in sexual immorality. So there are two things that I want us to see from the passage that we read just a few moments ago. The first thing is this. I want us to spend a few moments talking about the deceitfulness and the dangers of sexual immorality. The biggest part of this passage, that's exactly what Paul addresses. This is what he deals with. The deceitfulness and the danger of sexual immorality. Notice how he begins in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me. And he's going to repeat that phrase twice in this one verse. All things are lawful for me. And what most scholars believe is that Paul is doing one of two things here. Uh, perhaps first of all, he is addressing a, an expression that was used often among the Corinthians, the people who lived there in that city. Perhaps there was this idea or this saying that was prominent among them that anything goes in the city of Corinth, that you're free to do whatever you want, to live however you want here in Corinth. It would be the same as people in our day saying what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? It was just something that was common. People knew that this was the expression by which the people in Corinth lived. Anything goes. Do whatever you want. That's a possibility. The other possibility is that Paul is addressing these Corinthian believers who have actually taken his own words, words that Paul had, had, had spoken to them previously, and now they've twisted them and perverted them to justify their own sinful behavior. Because when Paul went to Corinth, he went there preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know the message of the gospel, right? The gospel is that Jesus Christ came into this world to die for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day so that through him and only through him, only by faith in him, can we be forgiven of our sins, be made right with God, and have the hope and the promise of eternal life. The message of the gospel is that you will never be good enough in order to measure up to God's love and favor. You'll never be good enough to earn God's love and favor. You'll never, you'll never be able to work your way to heaven. You'll never be saved by what you do in the flesh. Your only hope of being saved is put your faith in what Jesus has done for you. And for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we know that not only could we not save ourselves by works, but we can't keep ourselves saved by works either. There are, that everything about our salvation depends upon the grace of God. When Paul went there, he preached this to the people. But the people had begun to, to, to rationalize and justify their sin in their minds by taking what Paul's words and perverting them and, and, and using them to mean this. Well, if I'm, if I'm not saved by works, if I can't be right with God based on what I do, and if we're only saved by putting our trust in Jesus and, and we can't stay saved by our works after we put our trust in Jesus, then really does it matter how I live? Salvation has nothing to do with me or what I do in my flesh. So am I not free now in Christ to live however I want to live? This is what they were saying. And Paul looks at them and writes to them in verse 12, and he says, yeah, all things are lawful for me. It is true that you are free in Christ, but that does not mean that all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. In other words, Paul is warning them that even though we have freedom and liberty in Christ, we still must be aware of the dangers of sin. See, Paul, in his mind, believes that to confess Christ as one Savior and Lord and yet knowingly and willingly continue in a pattern of sin indicates a couple of things about us. For one, it indicates that we are completely indifferent to what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. We'll talk about this more in just a few moments, but, but for a person who professes to know Christ, to continue willingly in a pattern of sin is to make light of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could continue in sin. He died in order to deliver us from sin. Not just the punishment of sin, but also the power and dominion that sin has over our life as well. The other thing it indicates about us is that when we knowingly and willingly continue in a pattern of sin as those who profess Christ, it shows an ignorance on our part to the danger that sin poses and the destruction that it brings upon our life. God hates sin. He despises it. He warns us against it, not just because it's offensive to him, but because of the danger and the destruction that it brings upon us. Paul is warning them about this. That any sin and all sin, if you give yourself to it, will ultimately lead you in a path that will result in destruction. It will bring about devastating effects in your life. But this is especially true of the sin of sexual immorality. Now, just so we can be clear this morning, because we live in a very confused culture today where people have different ideas and different opinions about a lot of different things, even on this matter that we're talking about this morning, I think it's important for us to clarify what is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity or relationship, sexual relationship, that is outside the covenant relationship of marriage between a husband and a wife. Anything outside of that, any sexual activity outside of a covenant relationship between a husband and wife falls into the category of sexual immorality. It is sin against God. That means sex before marriage is sexual immorality. That means that sex outside of marriage, sex with someone other than the person to whom you are married, is sexual immorality. We live in a culture today where the state has redefined marriage. It has no right to do that because the, the state did not create marriage. God created marriage. God's the one who defines what marriage is and what marriage is not. God's clear in his word what marriage is. It's between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And yet we live in a world today where men are marrying men and women are marrying women. And so they call themselves married, but God does not recognize that as biblical marriage. And so even sex inside those relationships falls into the category of sexual immorality. But this was a problem back in Paul's day. And it's a problem in our day as well. Now, I want to be clear that sex is not a shameful or dirty thing. Anytime the word is brought up, especially if you mention it in church, there's a lot of snickers, people kind of smiling and looking back and forth with one another. But this is not a dirty thing. God designed it. God created it. It's God's gift to man even before the fall. However, God did reserve 
sex to be exclusively for the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And inside the marriage relationship, the intimacy shared by a husband and wife is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful expression of love, not just the love that they have for one another, but also it's a beautiful picture and a beautiful expression of God's own love for us. But just like with everything else, what God has designed is good, Satan has corrupted and perverted and now uses for evil. And some of these Corinthian believers, like many professing Christians in our culture today, were ignoring what Scripture teaches and were engaging in sexual immorality anyway. And they saw it as no big deal. I'm free to do whatever I want. I should be free to live however I want. I should be free to love whoever I want to love. With no restrictions, no boundaries, no parameters on my life whatsoever. They didn't see it as a big deal. In fact, in verse 13, Paul says, he brings up something else that was being said there in the city of Corinth. He's quoting them. These are their own words. Food for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now, what does that mean? What the Corinthians believed is that just as God created our bodies, our earthly bodies, so that when you're hungry and you need food to satisfy it, it's natural for you just to go and eat something. Because God designed our bodies also for sex, if you have a desire for sex, then it's just natural and legitimate for you to go and to satisfy that desire however you would. It's not a big deal. Because they believed that in the end, God was going to do away with the body anyway. That there's really no purpose, no place for the body in God's eternal plan. So one day, God's going to destroy the body. So what you do with your body now really doesn't matter. In their mind, it's what's on the inside that matters. It's what's in your heart that matters. As long as you're in your heart, you love God. As long as in your spirit, you profess Christ. And what you do with your body, that's not a big deal. Who cares? Does any of this sound familiar to you? There's absolutely nothing new under the sun, just as Solomon declares in Ecclesiastes. The devil keeps telling the same old lies, and people keep believing them. But here is the truth, and Paul brings this out. God does care about what you do with your body. God cares about everything about you. And so Paul refutes this in verse 13, and he says, no, the body is not for sexual immorality. The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And he reminds them in verse 14 that just as God raised up the Lord, talk about the Lord Jesus, God is also going to raise us up one day by his power. You see, the Bible does not teach that in eternity you and I are going to live as disembodied spirits. When Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't just rise from the dead in spirit, he rose bodily from the dead. He has a glorified body. The Bible talks about it. The Bible describes Jesus in his glorified state. Look at chapter 1 in the book of Revelation. The Bible says this is a preview of what we can expect, that even though we cannot even begin to fathom what our glorified bodies are going to be like, what we do know is that in the end, we are going to be like him. We're going to be like Jesus. 
And so God is going to raise up this body one day from the dead. And it's not going to be the same body that you inhabit now. It's going to be a perfect body. It's going to be suited for glory. But God is not, listen, God has a purpose for your body. Even in eternity, God has a purpose for your body. But God also has a purpose for your body right now. You see, yes, it's true that when a person puts his or her faith in Christ, we become new on the inside. God gives us a new spirit, a new heart, new desires. But how is this new life and this new, these new desires, how are they to be lived out? They're to be lived out through these bodies that God has given us. In other words, what God is doing on the inside of us, it is to be fleshed out and lived out through our bodies and how we live our lives every day and what we do with our bodies every day. And Paul brings this out in his, in his letters, not just here to the Corinthians, but in other places. He reminds us that our bodies belong to the Lord. He says to the Romans in chapter 12 and verse 1, in the book of Romans, he says, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your what? He doesn't say that you present your spirits He says that you present your bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. He's talking about these bodies. These bodies that we now inhabit, we're to present our bodies to the Lord to serve Him. Not to serve ourselves, but to serve Him in this life. He says also in Romans chapter 6 and verse 11, Likewise, you also, talking to believers, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. In other words, when I put my trust in Christ, I should have died to sin. No longer do I allow sin to have dominion over my life because I belong to Jesus now. And so I reckon myself to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So therefore, he says in verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust." You don't just do whatever, whatever you feel like doing, whatever your fleshly desires are. You don't just do that, but instead you live for the glory of God. Do not let your body be used to obey its lust, but present your members as instruments of, of righteousness unto God as those who have been made alive from the dead. This is what he said to the Romans. It's the same thing he's saying to the Corinthians. Our bodies are not to be used as instruments for sin and unrighteousness. They're to be used as instruments of righteousness to serve Christ and to bring glory to Him. And with this in mind, he gets to verse 15 in this chapter. And he says, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? He's talking about our bodies. Should I take now what belongs to Christ and join it to a harlot, make it members of a harlot? Certainly not. Strong language there, by the way. God forbid that I would do something like that. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Let me try to help you understand what Paul is talking about here. When he mentions the harlot here, Of course, you know that in the city of Corinth, there were these prostitutes who came down, and so prostitution and harlotry was common in that city. But he's not really thinking about a particular person here, but rather he is thinking about this spirit of wickedness and evil and darkness and depravity that characterizes our world. The forces of evil that are at war with Christ in this world. 
Paul says, when you engage in sexual immorality, what you're doing is you're taking something that belongs to Christ and you are surrendering it to and becoming intimate with. Intimate in the most, I mean, when, when, when you commit sexual immorality, you're committing the most intimate act that two people can engage in in this life. And Paul says, when you do this, you in Christ are becoming, in a sense, intimate with the very wickedness and evil that he died to deliver us from. And in Paul's mind, the idea that a follower of a Christ, that a follower of Christ would think that participating in such evil was okay is simply inconceivable. How could you do such a thing? Why would you ever believe that doing such a thing would be all right? To take what belongs to Jesus, what belongs to Christ, what he died for, and to give it to harlotry and to evil and to wickedness so voluntarily, so willingly, and so intimately. It brings shame upon the witness of Christ in his church and upon your own witness as one who professes Christ and says that you follow him. But then on top of that, there's all of this evil and destruction that you bring upon yourself as well. You get to verse 18, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. We'll come back to that in just a moment. For every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. What Paul is saying is this, is that sexual immorality involves more than just your body. When you become intimate with another person in that way, you become joined to a person on a deeper emotional and spiritual and relational level. It's like becoming one with that person. When two people engage in sex, they share a bond from that moment on that remains long after the act itself. It's like you're giving a part of yourself to them and taking a part of them with you so that neither one of you are ever again the same. And what is the result of that for a sexually promiscuous culture? It's a world that is now full of emotionally and spiritually broken people. That's what we have all around us today. We're a society that boasts of our liberties and our freedoms to do whatever it is we want to do, to live however it is we want to live. And yet the truth is, we are nothing more than slaves to shame and to guilt and regret and loneliness and emptiness and misery. I have no doubt that because of the way a lot of people view sex and treat sex in our culture, that it has given way to other destructive behaviors as well, such as drug abuse, alcohol abuse. People sink down in deep, dark depression because they're broken, they're lonely, they're miserable as a result of this sin 
that has been a part of their life and for many of them has enslaved them. And what Paul is doing is he's warning us of all this. He's reminding us that what God has said to us in his word, God has said to us because he loves us and because he cares about us. When God says don't do something, it's not because he's trying to rob you of some kind of thrill or joy that is going to take your experience and take your life to a whole nother level. But rather, he is warning you of something that if you give, give yourself to it, will bring about more devastation and destruction than what you can possibly imagine or conceive. And what God is trying to do is spare you from that. When God places sex within the marriage relationship, God is saying to you, listen, if you want to know the best, if you want to enjoy the best, if you want to have the best, then listen to me and keep this where it belongs because when it's shared between one man and one woman in a life together in the covenant of marriage, it is a wonderful and it is a beautiful and it is a marvelous thing. But outside of that, it becomes nothing but Satan's dirty plaything that he uses to destroy life after life after life after life. And this is the Word of God. And so what Paul is doing here is he's warning us of the deceitfulness and the dangers of sexual immorality. It brings me to the second thing that I want to give you real quick, and that's this. What Paul has to say to us about the deliverance and the deterrent from sexual immorality. He says in verse 18, flee immorality. Put as much distance between yourself and immorality as possible. This is not something to play with, not something that you should mess around with, not something that you should live your life, seeing how close you can get to the edge without falling off. If you do that, you are going to suffer the consequences of that. This is a very powerful thing. It's a powerful sin. One of the most powerful evils and sins that we are called upon to resist in this present age. And so we must take action and we must prepare ourselves in order to be able to stay away from the danger and the destructiveness of sexual immorality. So, so how do you do that? Let me give you five things real quick. I'm going to move through this quickly, all right? All God's people said. All right. Here's the first thing. Recognize and affirm what God says about sexual immorality. In other words, recognize that God's Word is truth. And it is the authority that is to govern our beliefs and behavior as those who follow Christ. We are not called upon to do whatever Hollywood is doing. We're not called upon to do whatever we hear on the radio. We're not called upon to do what everybody around us may be doing. We're called to live our lives according to God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. His Word should be the authority that governs our beliefs and our behavior as those who follow Christ. His Word is timeless. It is perfect. It never grows old. It never will become outdated. It's as relevant and true today as it has always been. And you need to listen to it. You need to listen to the Word of God. You need to know what God's Word says and obey it. Live by it. Listen, those who break God's laws ultimately end up broken. Remember that. And that goes with any sin. Those who break God's laws ultimately end up broken. And I'll tell you again that God has given us his word not because he hates us, but because he loves us. It's not because he's trying to rob us of anything, but because he's been trying to preserve what is good 
and what is right for us. And so we need to heed and listen to the word of God. Let this be the standard by which you live your life and by which you make your decisions, all of your decisions in life. Live by the word of God. Number two, you need to avoid the traps that fuel the temptation of sexual immorality. In other words, there are things, certain things, certain places, even certain people that you may need to put out of your life because having those things around only adds to or increases the temptation to engage in sexual immorality. This is a whole sermon unto itself, but let me just say to you this morning that there is no place and no excuse for pornography in a believer's life. And yet this is widespread. This is common today. You would be shocked today to know how many people sitting in our church pews every week are addicted to pornography, have viewed pornography over the past week. The numbers are staggering. And Satan has lied to people and has told people that it's harmless, that that watching pornography is at least better than engaging in the physical act of immorality. But he's a liar, and he's the father of all lies. And I'm telling you something. Listen, to watch pornography is to watch one of the world's biggest industries that is causing and fueling more evils in this world than you can possibly imagine. Sex trafficking in the world today, child abuse in the world today is being fueled by pornography. Whatever you put in your head will eventually come out in your life. You need to know that. A man can't take fire in his bosom and not eventually get burned by it. Stay away from it. If you're wondering if it's wrong, of course it's wrong. Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, listen, it's not just, you've heard it said to those of old, don't engage in the act of adultery. But I'm telling you, if you think about it, if you fantasize on it in your mind, it's as if you've already committed the act itself. We're not to give ourselves to impure thoughts. We're not to sit around fantasizing about sexual immorality in any form or fashion whatsoever. We've got to guard and protect our minds. Not only that, as an unmarried believer, you should never put yourself in a compromising situation where you would be tempted to commit sexual immorality. There's certain places that you don't need to go. There's certain situations that you don't need to to put yourself in because I don't care how spiritually strong you think yourself to be, you put yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time, in the wrong moment, you'll end up doing the wrong thing. It happens. It's not that people set themselves out to go there. They just end up there because they were careless along the way. And so guard yourself against those things. As a married believer, you should never be flirtatious or put yourself in a situation where you might develop an emotional bond with anyone other than your spouse. In short, let me tell you this. The man who would not fall down doesn't need to walk in slippery places. Can I get an amen? So guard yourself. Number three, remember who you are and to whom you belong. Paul says in verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have from God? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've grown up in church my whole life. And so I've heard this. I heard it when I was a kid. People said it to me. And people still say it to me as a pastor today. Kids will go running up and down the halls of the church. You don't, don't be running in the church. This is God's house. Why would you do that? 
I got people come up to me all the time. Did you know that there are people bringing coffee into the sanctuary during the worship services? This is God's house for pity's sake. Why would you do something like that in God's house? Listen, I'm telling you, listen, we, 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 we should take care of this place. It's the place where we meet, the place where we gather. We should be thankful for this place. But this is not God's house. You're God's house. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you remember that, that what you do with your body, the situations you put your body in, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, if somebody were to come into this room and commit some kind of lewd, obscene act that is clearly defiant of God's Word, we would be in a hissy. I mean, we would be beyond ourselves. We would, we would throw a fit that somebody would desecrate this place by treating it in such a manner. But listen, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. What are you doing with your body? Your body is not to be a, a, a temple of worship to the idols of self and self-gratification. Your body is a temple that is to be devoted to the worship of God. And everything that you do with your body should be done to the glory of God. So remember who you are and to whom you belong. Number four, remember the price that was paid to rescue you and redeem you from your sins. Paul reminds us in verse 20 that we are not our own, for we were bought at a price. And that price was the, own, the, the, the precious blood of God's only begotten Son. The price paid for our forgiveness was the suffering and shed blood, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He suffered the punishment that we deserve for all of our sin. But he didn't die and give his life to save us so that we could continue in sin, but so that we might be delivered from it. Not just the penalty in the end, but even its power and dominion over us in the present. We don't have to live as slaves to sin any longer. If Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord of your life, because He has supplied for us the power to be able to live a life that was once impossible for us, but we need to remember what He did for us on the cross to make all of that possible. He died to give us new life. We should never make light of his sacrifice by just willingly giving ourselves back over to the sin for which he died. And here's the last thing. Realize that your purpose in life is that of living for Christ. He says in verse 20, you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In other words, everything about us and everything about our life is to be lived for the glory of Christ. He says, glorify God in your spirit. That's the inner man, which includes our passions, our thoughts, our motives, our hearts, our desires, our intentions, our affections. We're to glorify God in all of those aspects, in all of those areas of our life. Glorify Him in our spirit. But also, we're to glorify Him with our bodies, with our actions, and with our behaviors. What Paul is reminding us is this, is that every part of you, every part of me belongs to God. And with everything that we are and everything that we have, we are to live our life to the glory 
of God. And that should be our desire. Not to live for ourselves, but to live for him who died for us. Now let me say this to anyone sitting here this morning who may be feeling broken and empty because of sexual immorality in your past or maybe even in your present. I want you to hear me this morning. When Jesus came into this world, he didn't come into this world to condemn us. He came into the world to save us. To save us from our sin. And only he has the power to do that through faith in him. One of the most beautiful things about this chapter, the most beautiful thing about this chapter, chapter 6, is that before Paul gets down here to the end where he talks about this whole issue of sexual immorality, he's just mentioned to the Corinthians in verses 9 through 11 that there are certain behaviors and certain attitudes, certain lifestyles among the unregenerate that once characterized their life. He says, don't you know that idolaters and fornicators and homosexuals and sodomites and adulterers and liars and thieves, that all these different types of people, that they're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven because they've never been saved. They're not going there. But then he looks at the Corinthians and says, but such were some of you. This is how some of you used to live. You used to be in this kind of lifestyle. This is the thing that you used to do in the past. But, but God saved you. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been washed in the blood. You've been made brand new. God has set you apart now for himself to live for his glory. You have hope now because of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness now because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. And if you're wondering what company you are in this morning, I am telling you, you're in the company of a bunch of people who have got it wrong, who have messed it up repeatedly in our past. People who are guilty of all kinds of things that we wouldn't want any, anybody to know about us. But praise God, because of the blood of Jesus, we've been forgiven. And listen, the same Christ who's forgiven us can forgive you. And what does he do with people who are broken? Because that's what sin does to all of us. It leaves us broken and empty. It promises a lot but never delivers. What does Christ do? Christ takes the broken pieces of our life and he makes us brand new. By his grace, he restores us and he redeems us unto himself so that he might fill us with his presence and with his spirit and use us again for his glory. As I was thinking about this message this week, I thought about a hymn that I grew up singing in church. What can wash away my sin? Anybody know the answer? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing 
but the blood of Jesus. Amen? Listen, there's hope for you. There's hope for anyone who would turn from their sin and turn to Christ and put their faith and trust in Him. If you've never done that, would you do that today? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. Our worship team is going to come, and they're going to lead us in a song of response this morning. Our pastors are not going to stand here at the front staring back at you as we sing this song of response this morning. But instead, our pastors are going to be on either side of the worship center near the doors. You'll be able to identify them. They're going to be standing there. If you need a pastor to pray with you, to talk with you this morning, we want to make ourselves available to do that. But we want to leave this area open here at the altar if anybody wants to come and pray this morning. And it may not be that your struggle today is with the sin that we have talked about in particular this morning. It may just be sin in general that you're having a hard time breaking free from. And whatever that sin might be in your life, you have found yourself rationalizing that sin, justifying that sin, continuing in that sin, and thinking that it's no big deal at all when it is. Christ didn't redeem you and save you so that you might continue in sin. He's called you into something better. And the only way you can live this life that He has called us to live is by His grace, by the power and the help of the Holy Spirit in your life every day, and by walking alongside other believers who are there to encourage you, to help you, as we seek together to live a life to the glory of Christ. And so I want you to know this morning that you're not alone. We all struggle with stuff. We all have things that we have a hard time breaking free from, but there is hope for us all in Jesus Christ. And today, if you just need to come and pray at the altar, we invite you to come and pray. If you need to pray with a pastor, come and pray with one of our pastors. If you've never given your life to Christ and, and you want to do that this morning, you feel God leading you, to place your trust in His Son as your Savior. Right where you're sitting, right now, you can cry out to God and say, Oh God, I recognize today that I'm lost, that I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I know that only Jesus can save me. I believe that He died on the cross for my sin. I believe you've raised Him up from the dead. I believe He's alive, and I'm asking Jesus today to come and live in me. I want to give my life to Christ today. And I want to spend the rest of my days living for Him and for His glory, not for myself, but to live for the one who died for me. I want a hope that reaches beyond this life. Only you can give that to me, Lord. And so I put my trust in you. And if you're praying today and put your trust in Christ, come and share it with one of our pastors. Share it with a friend who's sitting next to you this morning. But today, we invite you to come to Jesus. If you were encouraged by today's sermon, leave us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church Martin, visit fpcmartin.org.